You're Catherine Liu. And you're Ernie Manus. See how we mix that up so it's a little different this week? I like it. I like that. You know, we're getting close to the holidays. Have Are you, you excited? Started? Have you started getting ready? <laughs> you know I have Christmas lights on I know, but in I mean, my like, office, Ernie. Thanksgiving has got to come first. You're a little ahead <laughs> of yourself there. But like, are you already prepared? Have you started cooking? And free- Do you cook for it? I don't have to cook this year. <gasps> But I do have my plans in place, so I have somewhere to go well, on Thanksgiving, good. and I even have somewhere to go on the day after Thanksgiving. Shopping? Back-to-back Thanksgivings with different sides of my family. Ah, see, I've yeah. come up with a new thing. So I, we do Thanksgiving, of course, on Thanksgiving, and the next day I invite my friends over, and I say, you know what? I'm going to cook more. So we'll do like a second Thanksgiving with just us friends. And they all come over, and then I say, while you're here, why don't you decorate my tree? And every year they decorate my Christmas tree for me. But I think now you're a genius. To it. Well, I was till they listened to this and they're like, wait a minute. He's giving us leftovers and making us work. It's making memories. Thank you. That's how I like to look at it. So, what do you have on the show today? So, we are going to reach for the stars, Ernie. Yes. Oh. So, space travel meets classical music. The Houston Symphony has a world premiere coming up by their composer-in-residence, Jimmy Lopez Bolito. He has written a new symphony called Ad Astra to the Stars, which is dedicated to NASA and, of course, inspired by space travel, which is so near and dear to the heart of Houston. So I'm going to talk with Jimmy and get the scoop on this new work. Oh, that's cool. We're going we're gonna to stay a little closer to home. And uh, Catastrophic Theater is presenting a new play called Baby Screams Miracle. And though it's I love not, that title, can do I you just like say? That? I do. Not based in Houston, but the story is about a family facing an oncoming storm and the aftermath of that storm. So I think it's going to resonate very differently for a Houston audience and probably a lot of audiences that have seen it. So we have the director and one of the stars of the show, it's Jeff Miller is the director and Tamari Cooper back with us from Catastrophic Theater, sharing their views, thoughts on that show and what they're going to do. I'm very intrigued about the show. About a baby. Screams. Miracle. Yeah, I'm familiar <laughs> with that, actually. Oh, yes. Your baby's not a baby anymore. It's true. Though. But she can probably still scream if you want her to. <laughs> let's just have some candy. So let's unwrap <laughs> and start the show. Showtime. Catherine and Ernie are about to begin the show. Find your seats, silence all chiming devices, locate the nearest exit, and should you wish to partake of any hard candy during the program, please unwrap your candies now. Joining me now in the studio from Catastrophic Theater, Tamari Cooper and Jeff Miller. Hello to both of you. Hello. Okay, Baby Screams Miracle. Who wants to explain this one? Oh, boy. I just got the (laughs) hand pointing at me. You're the director, Jeff. Um, This is a play by a playwright named Claire Barron. She is new to Houston audiences, new to Texas audiences Mm -hmm. maybe as well. Um, Her most recent play called Dance Nation, actually she was a finalist last year for the Pulitzer. So we are very excited to be bringing her voice to our city. Catastrophic is known for sort of being the first of many of new exciting voices brought to our city over the years. And this play actually came to us through Jeff. I had read Dance Nation and wanted to do it, but the rights weren't available yet. And I was um, kvetching. 
to him. <laughs> Temi doesn't take no for an answer. Over drinks <laughs> about, oh, I really like this play. And he was like, you guys, I've been trying to get you to read this play by the same playwright for the last like three years. You're not listening to me. No respect. And so then he handed me the play and tell him why you like this play. Um, <laughs> Tamri's going to help me out today. Yeah, yeah it, I would say this This is probably the, only the third production of of this play. The first one probably was done in Club Thumb in New York City and then in Woolly Mammoth in, in Washington, D.C. But when I read it, uh, like I've been telling people, I really enjoy plays that tend to make me laugh and I don't know why or even if I should be yeah. laughing at those plays. And a lot of stuff that we do at Catastrophic is like that. And this one just has that in spades. So we There have- has to be a moment. You pick it up and you're reading it. And at what point did you say to yourself, this is something I would like to explore more, see on the stage, be part of. What was it that pulled you in? Pretty much after scene one. Uh, really? Right. So uh, we have we have Carol and Gabriel that come in, and it's basically a, a prayer sequence. I, I studied uh, uh, religious studies in college at the University of St. Thomas, and so some of those themes and how it was really working with us in this very strange yet funny yet sincere way uh, just really struck me as some of the things that, that I deal with and that I go through as I tend to explore how I, with my own coping mechanisms, if, if, if my religious background, things that I use to cope, things that, that I find funny, all of that was just contained in the very first scene. And I was like, oh, I hope this keeps getting better. Uh-huh. And it just did. Yeah. So It's a, it's a family story. Um, catastrophic, we tend to not do your traditional holiday programming with the sense of it being about... Santa and reindeer <laughs> and Christmas trees or Hanukkah bushes. Well, I would like to see your take on one of those <laughs> shows. I did a holiday show a long time ago. It just was in July. Um, <laughs> but uh, one of the things we still like to say is that it's a different type of holiday programming. For a lot of people, the holidays, even though we're being told constantly it's a time of celebration and you're supposed to be happy and everything gets wrapped up neatly in a bow with all of our wonderful, great holiday stories, um, not everybody feels happy all the Mm -hmm. time in the holidays um, or heard or seen. And families are are part of holidays usually. And there's a lot of challenges and complexity within family. So we try to find plays that maybe embrace some of that family dynamic. And if you are, you know, feeling a little oversaturated with your typical Christmas outings and holiday programming, um, it's kind of nice to be able to come in and see something that also addresses another way you feel during this time. Not to say that it's all dark and depressing. I mean, a lot of, you know, stuff is still very funny within Jeff your own family. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But it, it's definitely a little bit different. And this one does certainly address um, a family trying to cope through their own challenges, drama, relationships, also while being bombarded by a freak storm which is another uh, thing yes. that right now Houston, I was say, what yeah. brings yeah. this back home to us right. besides all the rest of it which can be universal there's a big storm in this show and we Houstonians mm. really understand our storms yeah and I should have mentioned that when you <laughs> asked me the question about why that could because that's over, over it's it's another character in the play and as Houstonians we've we've been uh, saturated with with uh, storms and being able to deal with those storms and even now after Harvey you know, I, whenever like it just rains, people starts raining. I really feel in the city, people start to freak out just a little bit. The, our sense of safety, and Claire talks about this uh, over the past couple of years. Our sense of safety of human beings, especially in Houston, has changed. Yeah, to where even a, a pretty moderate rainstorm will get people a little bit, a little bit antsy. And that feeling and that kind of thing is is contained in this play as well. Yeah. So Houstonians should really relate to to 
Well, it's interesting. It's such a part of our fabric of who we are as a people right. now, and we have all gone through this together on a number of occasions at this point, which is sad to say. But that to have then a show that you're incorporating that into it, it must really feel very different in an audience here than it would anywhere else. Yeah, I would think so. There's yeah. a lot of resilience within the family of dealing with this external um, force of the storm um, where they just keep going, which, mm-hmm. again, is very Houston. Yeah. Right. Just got to keep going through the through the night, through the storm. Talking about keeping going, you two, this is not your first rodeo together. <laughs> and if I'm right, you guys have shift positions back and forth. One directs the other, the other directs the other. You've both been together on stage. What is it like, Jeff, having to direct Tamri at this point in your relationship? <laughs> is she directable? Is, is, oh, <laughs> eminently. She's fantastically directable. And I do remember the moment uh, when we were running through the auditions when I decided that Tamri had to do the role. Yeah, and it was when she was actually getting up to read with other actors for me, and uh, we were doing a particular scene, and I was like, "So, Tamara, are you are you sure you can't do this show? Are you sure you can't do this play?" And I think she started to see well, herself in it. Right, as well. I had originally said I wasn't available for yeah. this in the calendar with catastrophic, and because I had just come out of directing tragedy too, and um, but I was the reader for our auditions, and I found myself really performing <laughs> in the auditions and were you and, trying to catch the director's eye and so yeah he did he stopped after a couple of people came through he's like are you really and i was like i don't know maybe i could do it yeah. and then you guys kind of screwed with me our friend kyle sturdivant had sat in on the auditions mm-hmm. as well and um at this point we were at the very last callback We'd pretty much been going through the lists of the cast, and then Kyle looks at me at one point before the very last person was going to come in and goes, oh, Tamri, would you ask this other actress to read for your role? And I was like, oh, um, yes, of course. And then he was like, ah, ha, ha, ha. So, yeah. And I get I get the double because I, of course, got my good friend Greg Dean, who's in the play as well with me. So I got two of my good friends and two of the best actors in the world in yeah, my play. Greg and I are married in this one. Yeah. So, again, we have a shorthand, and that's the wonderful thing about working with people for so many years is that we we have such a already established level of trust and communication that you, you kind of jump over some of those hurdles when you bring in entirely new people. We've got the shorthand. So is it hard then, As and I ask this from someone who is not an actor, you've worked with someone before, you've had this relationship before, to find new shading, new um, personalities for these characters, something different and fresh, or does it come more organically from the work you're doing? I think it's more organic. It comes from the text. We're a pretty yeah. text devout yeah. sort of company where you really, I think you get all of your answers are really there in the script. We're um, definitely a playwrights theater. Yeah. 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 So, do you prefer directing or acting? Uh, when I'm directing, I prefer acting. When I'm acting, I prefer <laughs> directing. That's pr- probably backwards. Yeah. Uh, uh, but I think it's because I just take everything so personally and I get so involved in it. And, ah. Tamara, uh, same question. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, there's really satisfaction in both. Of course, I'm a ham and I have been forever. So, you know, I do love the the roar of the crowd and the smell of the grease paint. Mm-hmm. But um, in these last several years, having directed not just my show, but several other productions, there's something very satisfying. It's almost like in my life now how I have a child. So when you're the director, you do have a, a maternal for me type relationship with the whole piece. And yeah. 
And that's also really satisfying to see, just see your baby grow. Mm-hmm. One thing I always try and say, especially whenever you're on the show, and I try and remind people, people who are only familiar with you through the Tamari Cooper shows are doing themselves a great disservice by not knowing you as a serious actress, Aww. too. Even though they say comedy is so much harder to play to play it well that it takes a great actor to be able to be a great comedian. But in your more dramatic works, I have always been so impressed. And oh, it's always like, wow, me. she is good. Ah. Yes. Stick around. Follow me around all day. (laughs) Feel great today, Ernie. Got bad news for you. I'm out of compliments Ah. now. I just only have so much kindness in me any given day, and you've taken mine for the week. Ah. But so, why should people come out and see this? Um, I think for some of the reasons that Tamara was talking about, because of the the alternative programming that we have for this. I mean, it's it's there there are deep themes. There the play can get dark, but it's still incredibly funny. The plays about love, the plays about forgiveness, all of those things are there that from from the, from the holiday season, the things we look for in the holiday season. But there's just it's just a little bit different. It's just a little bit more real. Yeah. I was reading an interview, Jeff, that you gave, uh, I think maybe Houston Press, and you were talking about how the narrative structure isn't what drives you. It's right. the, kind of the event of what's happening on the stage and letting us bring our own to it. Is there, though, when you see something like that and you're presenting it, you trying to influence how we will react or is it lay it out and let us just go? I'm actually fairly conscious of that in some of yeah. the choices and decisions that I make. So if I make this decision, does it make this particular thing? Now, sometimes you need to. Right. Right. Sometimes we need to make conscious decisions about specific things to drive narrative, to do things. But if there are choices that I have that can open that up into more of a Rorschach test, and when you ask me what the play is about, I always say, well, it's, it's a Rorschach test. What's the title? It's a Rorschach test. I like the things that I have to bring myself to to really f- flesh out and understand and, and, and be able to create with the piece of art itself. Yeah. Right. So as opposed to something that's more linear, more narrative, that's kind of telling me what the story is and I go along with it, which is fine. That's, that's enjoyable, too. The things I'm drawn to that I want to direct, that I want to act in are the opposite of that. Well, you are both drawn to this one, obviously, because you're doing it and doing it well. Uh, Baby Screams Miracle through December 15th. That is the date's right. right. I'm good Mm -hmm. at that. Your website is? Catastrophictheater.com. You are Tamari Cooper. You are Jeff Miller. I'm Ernie Manusen. We're done. Woohoo! Yay! Thank you guys for coming in. Thank you. And again, Baby Screams Miracle is happening at Catastrophic Theater over at the Match in Midtown. It runs through December 15th. To find out more information about it all, here's something we like to do. Their website, catastrophictheatre.com. So Very important. Very important. R-E. We must always straighten out how to spell theater for each of these groups. Will you ready to travel to outer space? Let's get out of here. Through the power of classical music, the Houston Symphony is presenting a brand new work by Jimmy Lopez Bolito. It's the Symphony Number no. 2, Odd Astra, and the world premiere is coming up December 5th, 7th, and 8th at Jones Hall. Um, we're listening to a little bit of the music right now, which they recorded in a rehearsal a few months ago. And this piece is dedicated to NASA and inspired by space exploration. And it's also a culmination of the composer's three-year residency Mm. in the city. So it's kind of a a love letter, a love note, let's say, pun intended, to (laughs) Houston. So you ready to get to meet Jimmy Lopez Bolito and hear about his NASA-inspired piece? Let's take off. Jimmy Lopez Bolito, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. My pleasure. 
Now, I'm talking to you in Berkeley. I mean, I'm in Houston. You're in Berkeley, um, where you live. And I understand you received your PhD in music from UC Berkeley. And before that, you studied in Finland at the Sibelius Academy in Helsinki. And before that, you studied at the National Conservatory of Music in Lima, Peru. And I want to go back even further. <laughs> I mean, okay. I'm, I'm sure this is a question you, you've been asked many times, but since it's the first time you and I are talking, I am curious how you fell in love with music. Well, you know, I don't come from a musical family, so it was a bit odd, perhaps, for my parents that I would fall in love with music. My dad was an architect. My mom um, is, um, is a retired elementary school teacher, and my sister is a biologist, so... I think the only president we have in the family is is my grandmother, who used to play the piano. Uh, but I never met her, actually, because she passed away before I, I was born. So my sister started to play the piano, um, and I don't think my family took it that seriously. I think it was more of a hobby and one of the activities that she was doing as a teenager. Uh, but... You know, I started to bother her a lot during the lessons. Um, and I remember jumping in and as the teacher was explaining things, I was like, you know, hitting the the high notes and to the point that it got a little annoying. So my mom said, would you like your own lessons? Um, I was five years old and I said, well, sure, why not? And that's how it started. I mean, it, it, I honestly didn't take it that seriously until I was 11 or 12 years old. I remember listening to the music teacher at my, at my high school play, A Bach Invention. And it was so striking to me, uh, especially the counterpoint, which I didn't know it was called that at that point, but all these voices and all this interplay between voices and harmonies. And that was so fascinating to me that I, I just had to know what it was. So I went to the teacher and he showed it to me, and it was Bach's invention number 13 in A minor. And once I got a hold of it, I saw that there was all this repertoire waiting for me, <laughs> waiting to be discovered, so to say. So I went through all of Bach's inventions and went into the fugues and preludes, and, and through Bach I went into Mozart and Beethoven, and, and I just knew at some point that this was my world, and I wanted to spend as much time as I could, you know, within that beautiful world. Now, I read that you were also fascinated by NASA as a child. And of course, your symphony that we're going to be talking about is dedicated to NASA. But was that a general wonder and fascination for space? Or do you have any specific memories of, you know, watching a shuttle launch? Or tell me about your fascination with NASA. For me, it was about space exploration and physics and astronomy. I, I mean, up to this point, I still uh, read science magazines like Discover, Scientific American, because I, I just love to understand what the newest developments are. And I watch, you know, PBS's Nova. So it's, it's something that science and physics and astronomy have, have been part of my life. And as a matter of fact, you know, the, the, a lot of, of that, those discoveries have come through through NASA missions or probes. So, you know, that my admiration towards NASA began early on. It is almost impossible to, to separate NASA from all the knowledge that we have gained in the past decades of exoplanets and 
other galaxies and nebulae and how the planets were formed and how solar systems and galaxies were formed. So it is, it is that kind of curiosity what struck me from the very, very beginning. Even when I was a child, of course, perhaps like many others, I was dreaming of being an astronaut one day. Uh, that didn't come <laughs> to fruition, but, uh, but I, I stayed in my heart. I mean, that, and as I said, it continues to be part of my weekly life, at least. I dedicate some time to reading and trying to understand where our knowledge is, is heading to. To choose space as a theme seems huge. I mean, that's like choosing the universe <laughs> as a theme. Um, so how did you break it down and what was your approach? How did you begin to write this symphony number two, Ad Astra? Now, when I sat down with, with the Houston family, as I like to call them, I wanted to ask them, what is it that makes them proud? You know, and there were two important answers. One was um, diversity. Houstonians pride themselves on being part of like the largest and most diverse uh, city in the United States. And the other one, and perhaps the one that, for which uh, Houston is most known, is the space program and, and the Johnson Space Center. So since I already had a very, very personal connection, let's say, to, to the subject matter, I, I couldn't wait to, to dig in a little more into NASA itself. And what I did was I focused on iconic missions uh, or programs. I, I start with Voyager. I continue with Apollo, go on to Hubble, and then I make a reference to the Challenger uh, space shuttle disaster, and I end with a hypothetical fifth movement called Revelation. You know, the symphony and the symphony orchestra is, is, is such a wide and broad palette of sound and color and timbre that I couldn't imagine a better vehicle to, to convey such a grand theme. There's a lot of room for us to create within the symphonic form because it usually is born of a single cell and a whole universe can, can just sprout out of it. Speaking of, you know, cells and getting down to the basic building block, the phrase ad astra, the name of your symphony, which means to the stars, you took the rhythm of the Morse code of that phrase? And that was the building block. Yeah, so that is actually what starts and triggers the whole symphony. We hear the vibraphone playing Ad Astra in Morse code. And then the rest of the symphony follows. And um, when I say that, I say that I consciously and uh, deliberately took that rhythm and expanded it, reduced it, accelerated, and, and, and did all sorts of things so that it could actually permeate through the whole symphony. And, you know, that was a great uh, springboard for me for, and for my imagination, so to say, and also a way to make it inherently connected with the material. And you also, I mean, it sounds like you experimented with some unusual instruments as well? You know, it's not that I set out to, to I'm going to put some weird instruments in this symphony. <laughs> it was more like... I I need sounds, and some of those sounds were just not present in the regular roster of the symphony orchestra. So I think the most remarkable, perhaps, is the, the glass harmonica. 
which is a, an instrument that is not that commonly heard. But that sound just could not, you know, could not leave my mind as I was writing the second movement, Apollo. And there was something about it that evoked, to me at least, the barren landscape of the moon. That eerie kind of foreign world, but at the same time familiar. And the other instrument that is perhaps a little more common, but also very special, is the wind machine. It is very theatrical and it was used in the 18th century and 17th century to evoke the sound of wind. And I used it in a movement called Hubble. Um, there are other instruments, like there's a siren at some point, there are some offstage trumpets as well. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of things that will keep the audience engaged uh, from beginning to end. And it also helps give each movement a personality. You know, this Symphony Number no. 2, this world premiere, clearly it's it's inspired by NASA and space exploration, and in some way also a love letter to Houston um, because of that connection, right, between the space program and the city. But I kind of imagine that it's, it's about more than that also. I mean, correct me. <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong. Correct me <laughs> if I'm wrong. But, I mean, what are you trying to get at about humanity and maybe space as a symbol of of humanity well and that is a wonderful thing that even though this work is very much connected to houston inspired by houston as you said i love that what you said a love letter to houston and the houston symphony in particular because we are um, now in my third year of my residency and this ongoing collaboration with Andres Orozco Estrada and, and the symphony is just invaluable. I have learned and grown and appreciate that a lot. Now for the symphony itself, that's a wonderful thing. It transcends Houston, it transcends even NASA and the US. It, it, is, it is really something that concerns all of humanity. And it is that that I wanted to pay homage to, especially in the last movement, as I was saying at the beginning, the first four movements focus on actual missions or, or programs, but the last one is more of a, a flight of fancy, if you want. Um, I imagine a day when the Voyager space probes have stopped emitting signals to Earth, because that's going to happen at some point, and they will just be like a bottle with a message in the middle of the ocean. The only function they will have is to carry that golden record and hope that perhaps someone will find it in the future. So my fifth movement envisions that happening, envisions that another civilization finds the probe, decodes the golden record, and gets back to us, sends signals back to us. And of course, the first thing they send is the Morse code Ad Astra. And when we get a very distinct radio signal, we respond and a dialogue ensues. And, you know, I envision a day when that contact with the first civilization probably won't stop there. It probably opens up the door to contacting many, many others who I'm hoping will come in peace. So the message is, is precisely that. Let's not give up. A lot of the fascination that people have deep, deep down is that desire to understand whether we are alone or not in the universe. And nobody knows the answer for sure. And, uh, and I'm hoping the answer will be, no, we're not and that they will come, and it will be a, a just reward to all our efforts as well. 
That kind of blows my mind. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Mine too. <laughs> Getting us to think and imagine and stay curious. Well, we're looking forward to the world premiere of your Symphony Number no. 2, Ad Astra, by the Houston Symphony, Jimmy Lopez Bolito. Thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you so much, Catherine. Thank you. And that was Jimmy Lopez Bolito, Houston Symphony composer in residence, who has written another world premiere and commission for the Houston Symphony. This one is called Symphony Number no. 2, Ad Astra to the Stars. And it makes its world premiere December 5th, 7th, and 8th at Jones Hall. And that concert also happens to feature violin superstar Gil Shaham performing the Brahms Violin Concerto, which, which I love. So this is... A lovely um, evening for you. Yes, this is going to be a great concert. You can get more information and tickets at HoustonSymphony.org. And you can also find out more about Jimmy at JimmyLopez.com. And you can find out more about us by just asking us. Yeah. You can send an email to us at uycn at houstonpublicmedia.org. You can find us in the realm of social media using the hashtag UICN. Or you can find me on Twitter at TV, And I'm at HPM Catherine. So let us know what you think, what you'd like to hear us chat about, and uh, maybe give us some ideas as we move into the holiday seasons. What are your favorite holiday theater traditions, things you go to and see with your family? Let us know. And until next week, I'm Ernie Manoos. And I'm Catherine Liu. See you then. Thanks for listening.